Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Unlike Paul, who tends to write in a logical, sequential kind of style, John is more thematic in his writing. So he'll uh, approach uh, different themes from different angles and use metaphors and symbolism. And sometimes it sounds a little bit like John repeats himself because the same words seem to keep popping up over and over again. Words like life, light, and love. But if there's one theme that seems to be central to uh, most of John's writing or to a lot of his writing, it's the language of abiding in Christ. And you might have noticed it in our passage just then and maybe from our passage last week. And if you look through 1 John, it's all the way through this language of us being in Christ and he in us. I think Matt spoke a little bit about this last week, about us being in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. And so while our passage today focuses in on love, I think we can only really understand what John is saying if we begin to grasp what he means by abiding in Christ. So I hope today as we explore what John means by this phrase, we might come to behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word together. Lord God, uh, we come together this evening with, uh, uh, I guess, a bit of a surprise that we're on Zoom, not what we were expecting a few days ago. And Lord, um, we know that no matter where we gather, when we are gathered in your presence, your spirit is with us, teaching us, informing us, speaking to us through your word. And we pray that you might speak to each of our hearts now, that you might form us and that we might go away having been reassured of your goodness and love and compelled to live love towards others as well. Amen. So I'd like to start by just sharing a quote I found from the Wine Society. It says this, A neatly coiffed and manicured vineyard with barely a leaf out of place rather belies the true nature of the grapevine. It's a climbing plant whose natural tendency is to ramble about until it finds something it can scramble up, clinging on with its tendrils and leaf stems until it gets its leaves out into the sunlight. The nature of vine branches is that they need to cling to something. They're not strong enough on their own, so they have to reach out and search for anything with the appearance of strength to wrap around and rely on. I find that a fairly powerful image for our human lives, like frail vine branches we're reaching out in search of something strong to cling to, something to abide in. And it's that 
kind of metaphor that Jesus has in mind back in John's gospel where he says in chapter 15, and we heard this from Jill earlier, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus' I am statements flow into the book of 1 John here as well. And, and while John doesn't specifically talk about vines anywhere in 1 John, this image of the vineyard is the dominant metaphor in his gospel for introducing and explaining what it means to be in Christ. And so the fact that he continues that language, I, I think it means it's helpful for us to draw upon that imagery when reading this book. So in the churches that John is writing to, there's this influential group of people who have left the church and are teaching a, a different gospel. And we don't know a whole lot about this movement except that they're urging people to look to places other than Jesus to find truth and meaning, M much like in the book of Colossians. And so the whole purpose of this letter is to encourage the church to abide in Christ and remain in the vine. John's helping them to discern between what is true and what is false. If you want to know who to listen to, John says, look for the vine dwellers. Look for those who are holding close to Jesus and bearing his fruit. And so, so it's with this frame, this, this backdrop, that John explores the three main themes of this book. Life, light, and love. We spent some time last week reflecting on the fact that God is light. But we might imagine life, light, and love as being like three key nutrients that are passed on and shared with us through Jesus, who is our vine. Like our nutrients flow from the soil through the vine and out to the branches. So life, light, and love flow out to us as we abide in Jesus, who is the life, the light, and true love. And so we're focus focusing in, and our passage focuses in on the nutrient of love today. But before we get into the passage we read, I want to just jump forward a minute to chapter 4, verse 16, because this is a really important starting point for understanding what John means by love. Listen, listen to what he writes. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. Just ponder that for a moment. God is love. Our starting point for understanding love is to understand that the truest form of love can only be found in one place, in our God who is love. We can search for love all of our lives. In the eyes of a lover, 
or the warm hug of a friend, in the meals cooked by a parent or in people praising our success. But we will never find a more pure love anywhere than in God. The, the Greeks had at least eight different words for love and, and some of them, we, we wouldn't even call them love today. But the highest form of these loves was the word agape. Self, selfless, sacrificial, and completely other person-centered. And, and, and that's the word that John uses here. So he takes the purest form of love imaginable in the human language and says God is agape. God is the purest love we can imagine. God is utterly for us and for his world at the expense of himself with no ulterior motive. In our world today, it's not uncommon to hear the phrase, love is love. And on one hand, I'm sympathetic to the motivation behind this statement because it seeks to be inclusive and compassionate. But John would say, love is not always love. See, as humans, we have these hungers and these appetites that we desire to fill, that we need to fill. There's an emptiness about us that so easily takes a virtue like love and twists it to selfish desire and then uses others to fill our own neediness and to fill that void that's there. But listen to what C.S. Lewis writes about God. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled. Only plenteousness that desires to give. Pure agape love can only be found in Jesus because God has no need or emptiness that would cause him to use us or to abuse us. His love is pure and is given freely. And so since God is love and since we are united to Jesus who is our vine, we for the first time in our lives experience this true agape love when we meet Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. We didn't read that, but back in verse 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. The loves of our world are revealed to be mere shadowy mists of the real thing as we come into God's family. And as people who have experienced this unique and extravagant love of God and are filled with his spirit, John says, you are now freed to love too. You can now love like God loves. In fact, since you abide in the one who is love, you will begin to love like God loves. 
Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we agape one another. For John, the key sign that we share now, not not something in the future, but we share now in the eternal life of Jesus, is that we love one another with the agape love of God. And John goes on to describe what that looks like in verses 16 to 18. Look at these words again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Love is following in the footsteps of Jesus who has given the world the purest love. Now, I don't know about you, but my love tends to have limits. During a phone call at 3 a.m., I'm not great at loving. When a friend calls me with a problem and wants some help while I'm away on holidays fishing, I'm not great at loving. Sometimes when I'm simply sitting and watching TV and someone disturbs my me time, I'm not always great at loving. But unlike typical human love, God's love is limitless. And and Jesus would give up the greatest gift any human can ever experience, the gift of life itself, for no other reason than love for us. We, We share together as a community of God's people here at Alive at Five, and when church families are functioning well, when they're safe spaces of trust, we begin to be known by each other. We begin to bear our scars and slowly pull off the masks. And as we spend time with one another and open up, God brings awareness of the needs of those around us and his spirit moves us to compassion. Think about those in our church family who you know are finding life tough right now. When you think about their situation, how do you feel? Well, perhaps you feel a little bit powerless to help. Maybe you feel that you lack the energy and time to invest in them as you wish you could. Maybe you feel a bit uncomfortable and don't want to pry into someone else's business. But hopefully, we feel compassion for them. Hopefully, we feel a prompting to help, even if we don't know exactly how. John would say those feelings of compassion should be heeded. God's spirit is moving us to act with God's love. And in such moments, we have a decision to make. Is love just going to take too much effort and risk so we quench God's love and bottle it away unexpressed? Or will we put that love into action and be an expression of God's love to our brother or sister? 
Love doesn't mean solving a person's problems for them. Love doesn't mean making them feel happy again. Love is simply to act, even in very small ways, for another person. Not for accolades, not for recognition, not for their thanks, but simply for them. Divine-dwelling life is a life of love in action. John's writing can sometimes come across as being very black and white. Verse 14 is an example of this where he writes, anyone who does not love remains in death. In John's way of thinking, we are either fruitfully abiding in the vine or we are dead branches. There's no in-between in John's thinking. And that can be pretty hard for us to get our heads around because we know that our lives in the vine involve a lot of stumbling. We are selfish and often don't act lovingly. And maybe that makes us ask the question, well, does that mean that we don't share in Jesus' life, light and love? Is John saying that that means we're not in the vine, that we're not in Christ? I think John's words in verses 19 to 21 are reassuring. He speaks of those whose hearts condemn them and those whose hearts don't condemn them. In other words, he expects that people will respond to his words in two different ways. There'll be some who are filled with guilt and some who are filled with confidence. Some who dwell on the ways in which they have not loved and some who rest confidently in God's grace. Maybe sometimes we feel a bit of a mixture of the two. The reality is that there will always be more love needed in our world. As finite creatures, there are genuine limits to our ability to provide love in every space that it is needed. God might be teaching us how to love with the quality of his love, but we are not God. And that means that there will be times when we feel the weight of letting people down and not loving as we wish we could. But John says that as people of the vine, our hearts can be at rest. Listen to what he says. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Guilt is our hearts and consciences condemning us and telling us we are not good enough, that we have not done enough. But these feelings can be misleading. It's not our emotions or feelings of guilt that have the final word over our lives. Those emotions are not ultimate truth. Jesus is truth, and in him God says to us, You are my child as we turn and cling to him in trust. That is the greater word. That is the greater truth. Jesus' call to bring you into the vine trumps any guilt or fear or doubt you have about yourself. 
and he will teach us to love. As we've worked our way through this passage briefly, uh, there's, there's so much more that we, we could dwell upon, but we've already talked a lot about how we might respond to God's word. We've seen the call for us to embody God's love by acting on the spirit promptings of mercy and compassion. But we could easily go away from this passage filled with a mindset of anxiously finding more and more ways to do love with a feeling of, I I must try harder to love. And perhaps in, in one sense, this wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, but maybe we just need to be a little wary of that mindset. When love becomes an anxiety-driven pursuit, it can shift from being other person-centred to being all about making ourselves feel good. It can become disconnected from Jesus' love and become a form of relieving our own feelings of inadequacy and and quickly shift to this self-centred drivenness. When we do that, we end up loving out of our own emptiness instead of loving out of God's plenteousness. This is why John's framing for this passage is so important. His primary call throughout the book of 1 John is not to try harder to love, but to abide in Christ, who is love. To be with Jesus, to know him and to cling to him, to be filled by him and formed by him so that out of our relationship with him, out of his plenteousness, our love might flow. We will only ever embody God's love to the world when it flows naturally from being with the one who is love. And so abiding in Christ is a spiritual reality. We are in Christ now as God's people. But John also calls us to practice abiding in Christ also. So let me share one or two thoughts about what that might look like. And I I don't think I, I need to say too much because we all know what it means to abide in something. We we do it all the time. We know how to abide in front of the TV. We know how to abide on social media. We know how to abide in our work or in a really good book. To abide in something means to give ourselves over to it, to place our attention and our physical presence there, to invest our emotions and our hearts into it. To abide in something means to be fully present to it. So let's explore that for a minute. When I sit down to abide in a book, it doesn't happen all at once. First of all, I make a decision to physically put myself in a space where I can be present to the book that I'm reading. Next, my mind and intellect begins to be engaged as I read the words and get to know the characters and story. And somewhere along that journey, my heart and emotions get caught up in the book and I lose all track of time. 
I find myself wholly given over to that world and place. I feel the characters' feelings. I share their joy and lament. I find myself daydreaming about that story in every, in every waking moment. Perhaps that's a helpful analogy for understanding a little of what it means to practice abiding in Christ. Perhaps the practice of abiding begins with making ourselves physically present to God. To place ourselves in situations where we can intentionally attend to his word. Talk with him. Hear from him. Sing to and of him. Reflect on his goodness with one another and share stories of his love in action. As much as any other reason that we gather together, we are practicing the abiding life. And as we hear God's story and bear our fears and our joys before him, and as we meditate on his goodness, but perhaps, perhaps we don't always feel our hearts engaged as we wrestle with language and words and the distractions around us. But I'm convinced that even more than the most wonderful novel in all the world, God will capture us and pull us into his story. And somewhere along the way, we will find ourselves wholly wrapped up in wonder of our God. And we will know again and again that his story is our story. His life is our life. His spirit is our spirit. And his love is our love. Let's pray. Lord God, what love is this? That you would send your son, that he would give his life willingly, for with no ulterior motive, simply because you are love. Lord, thank you that you have poured out your love on us, that we are recipients of the most pure love the world has ever known. Lord, may your love change us. May it fill us. May we be so secure in your hands that out of your plenteousness and, and out of the knowledge that we are completely loved with no more need, we might freely love others as well. Lord God, teach us to abide in you to continually turn attentively towards your goodness and love, to dwell in the vine, that we might bear your fruit to the world. Amen.